0: Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fuganaga. If you're watching us on YouTube, please take a second to give us a like. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast service, please give us a five-star rating. We really appreciate the support. And for more great interviews, visit our website, ScriptsAndScribes.com. Today on the podcast, we've got the screenwriting team behind A Quiet Place and the writing and directing duo of the Eli Roth-produced horror film, Haunt. They're currently working with Sam Raimi on an as-yet-to-be-revealed new project and teaming up with Stephen King on an adaptation of his short story, The Boogeyman. They are Scott Beck and Brian Woods. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Absolutely. Thanks, Thanks for, having for having us. us. To be live here. from someone's home studio or, or home uh, theater, I should say. Yep. Where are you guys?
1: Yeah, yeah, we're in Iowa, um, which is where Brian and I originally met, you know, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away when we were about 11 years old. Um, And so Iowa, we've always tried to keep a footprint in Iowa, and especially like the last few months, it's uh, a place to get away. We have a home base here and and able to get outside of uh, LA, you know, for for the moment, at least.
0: So you guys are one of those true rare partnerships, like you guys are if you met when you were 11, you're obviously very good friends. And so mm-hmm. I find other than brothers, uh, although you guys could be brothers probably, <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> and maybe it feels like it at times, uh, it's it's a real true partnership, which I think is great. And I'd love to talk to you about working as a writer team and as a directing team as partners and how that works for you guys. Uh, but first, I wanted to just maybe get a little bit more into your background and how you guys got your start. Mm -hmm. You guys are from Iowa. You still live at least part-time in Iowa. So how Mm -hmm. did you decide, Hey, let's become famous screenwriter directors. (laughs) And and how did that work for you guys? (laughs) And, and and who, how, what was the inception point and what was your inspiration for that?
2: Well, before, before Scott and I met, we were both um, as kids individually making, you know, little home movies with our with our action figures and our toys and, and bothering our other friends to help us out and, and make those movies with us. And so when I met Scott, it was like, oh, wow, there's, there's somebody in this world that actually enjoys doing that, too. I no longer have to um, beg my friends, he's actually excited to make movies. And so it just began as something that we loved doing it was just a lot of fun. And, um, and all through middle school and high school, we kind of just kept upping the stakes and size of productions. Um, By the time we were in high school, we were making these kind of no budget feature films um, with all of our kind of other friends and um, just pushing each other. And we, and we just slowly started to realize that we were stronger together, that having a partner to give you feedback and challenge you, challenge you and push you to um, write things in a more creative way or, to aspire to a higher level like really
1: elevated each of each of our works yeah I mean it was almost like when we were writing independently of each other we were still like supporting each other by like producing the others you know no budget film or something but like I would turn in a draft of the script to Brian you know like 90 pages of a a feature that I wrote when I was 17 and, and didn't know what I was doing and Brian would look at it and be like this doesn't work this doesn't work this doesn't work And I'm like where were you like three months ago when I started writing this. And I think what was great is that we got into each other's work earlier when we started writing together and therefore being able to be um, hopefully somewhat objective early in that process and really try to steer the ship collectively into, into a place by challenging each other's ideas, which continues to this day to be one of the most useful things of this, of this duo.
2: And also being cheerleaders for each other because like I'm, Like, I'm Scott's biggest fan. Like, when we were kids, like, the material that he would write and direct, like, I loved. I was like, wow, like, where did you come up with that? How'd you do that? And so, like, I would learn from Scott, and I think vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, Scott would be very supportive of of my work. So, um, it's a tough business, as you know, and so it's nice to to have a partner who helps you, and it's nice to have a shoulder to cry on when uh, things don't go well,
0: (laughs) which is often. So, you're from Iowa. Did you study filmmaking and screenwriting out there or is it something you picked up school of Tarantino by watching a lot of films how did you guys learn the process
1: yeah I mean we we came of age you know we were we were teenagers in the in the mid to late 90s and what was great was like the advent of like DVDs and being able to you know listen to commentaries and watch making of um, like the the Paul Thomas Anderson film Magnolia has a great 90 minute making of that movie that's very raw and it's not like your typical like you know press kit glossy interviews it shows you the nuts and bolts of filmmaking and so those were the type of um, type of film school elements that we had um, we eventually went to University of Iowa but at that point we were doing so many films outside of class that we were like if we only do film you know, 24 seven, we might drive ourselves crazy. And so we did what what our parents called the more practical thing. And we were like, we did communication degree where we just studied a bunch of different things that had nothing to really do with film at the moment. Um, And then like, for instance, a a class that we took was a nonverbal communication course. And there were things in that about how, you know, our human language skills are so much of what's not being said that eventually like found their way into the script for A Quiet Place. Um, And then there were like, a few film screening classes that we took uh, like that exposed us to incredible French filmmakers, German filmmakers, Taiwanese filmmakers, and that exposed ourselves to the world of cinema that was outside of, you know, the, the confines of the United States of America and taught us like all these incredible stories and filmmaking techniques that, uh, that we just love ingesting to this very day. So we, we tried to like have our hands in, in a, a bunch of different things during those, those quote unquote film school years.
0: Mm-hmm. And, So you, you're Iowa based. Uh, You obviously still have a home there or homes there. And we often get asked, how is it possible to make it from an area outside of Los Angeles, whether it's in another country or just around the country somewhere else, but not in Los Angeles. Do you have to live in Los Angeles to be a filmmaker, a screenwriter?
1: Right. It's a complicated answer. And, and part of like our journey, like, because we, we have a presence in Iowa, but we have equal, if not more presence in LA at the same time. Um, like I, I moved out to LA shortly after I was in college. Um, Brian came out like a few years after that, once we had like a more professional gig that, that was lined up that, that could support that. And then we ended up like then also having a place here in Iowa. And I think like, there was always that question of like, can we make it from Iowa? And what the opportunities you can afford yourself when you're in a place outside of LA is having the freedom to write for your own backyard and not having to like raise a million dollars to make a movie there. And so what we absolutely loved about um, living in Iowa to this day is that it's, it's not Hollywood. Like the idea of making films here is exciting from an entire community standpoint. So you can get locations for, for cheap or for free. You can get incredible talent um, in the area that that is untapped and has a reality to it. And so it's basically like it's it's a fertile place, um, no matter if it's Iowa or if it's, you know, anywhere around the world that's that's not Hollywood or New York you can actually make your own opportunities in a very exciting way. And and that's something that we always try to think about when we're writing scripts, even if it's, you know, A Quiet Place or, or the next film that we're doing, we try to think about how do you make films scalable? So worst case scenario, we could come back to Iowa and film them for a responsible number here and still have the same impact, you know, creatively that we would if, you know, Paramount Pictures makes a them- movie.
0: Well, you definitely mentioned sort of the advantages and the things you can do when you're not living in Los Angeles as, Mm -hmm. uh, as filmmakers, what are sort of the things that living in Los Angeles, the advantages that it provides?
2: Yeah, I mean, LA is, is where the business happens. So it's, it's a great opportunity to network and meet other people who are not only your peers in the business, but also people who are the gatekeepers to the work um, and being in LA it's, it's weird. Cause we're living in a different time right now. You know, like I was about to say LA is like where, where all the meetings happen and you take general meetings and you, and being there in person and forging relationships face to face as um, as you're starting your career is really beneficial. But in this moment right now, that's not even happening. You know, <laughs> we're doing that via, everything's via uh, zoom and Skype and, and whatever. So um, but I think, um, As the world starts to come back to normal, that's a huge asset, building those relationships Mm -hmm. face to face. Anytime Scott and I can be in the room, whether it's a notes meeting on a project with a studio, or it's an actor that we're trying to woo, we always push for the in person meeting. Mm -hmm. Now that might mean we're in Iowa and we're flying out to LA for that particular meeting. But being in person,
1: we just feel like is it just always builds a stronger relationship. And I think the other thing, too, is like like right when I moved out to L.A., like there, we had really zero connections. It wasn't like we were we were going out there with, you know, family that that worked at William Morris Agency or anything. Um, and so it was really taking the time to find our footing. And, and literally for for years, we were trying to figure out, like, how do we crack, you know, into Hollywood And yet some of the early relationships that we forged, whether it's through like a friend of a friend who worked as like a development assistant at a production company, we can now look, you know, 13, 14 years later and see those people now being VPs at like big companies or or VPs at studios. And what you think at the time, at least what we thought at the time when we were moving out there is like oh, you need to get in touch with, you know, Steven Spielberg, you need to get in touch with, um, you know, Ben Affleck's agent and such and like, get all the heavy hitters. But what we realized is, no, you need to find the people, you know, that are cracking in at your level, because those eventually will be the people that are doing incredible things, you know, years from now. And hopefully you find a support system where, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats.
0: Mm-hmm. And Brian, you had mentioned that a lot of meetings obviously now during coronavirus taking place obviously via zoom or Skype or whatever medium that, 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 uh, that you guys choose. Do you see that as being a constant going forward? Like it becoming much more frequent. In other words, the, the, the well, drives across town being less frequent, but then you also well, mentioned I mean, that being in person obviously is a huge advantage meeting face to face as well.
2: Well, there's no question that um, the the industry is already feeling the sense of like, wow, why are we sitting in traffic for three hours a day? Because truly, L.A., if you haven't been there before, it's just it's very spread out. It takes forever. If you if you are meeting at multiple studios or production companies, if you're just going to lunch, sometimes it takes 20 to 30 to an hour um, to, to drive. And so, so much time is wasted. So I definitely think that the business is going to change a little bit. There's no question. There's no going back from the convenience of being able to Skype into somebody's home and, and connect that way. But, um, at the same time, uh, you know, in the, in, in film, we always look at it as you need to do, it's such a tough business. And I think everybody knows that. So we're always thinking like, what is, what is that little extra, 0.05% 0.05% that we can do that can put us ahead of everybody else. And, and I think that's what I was saying is like, sometimes that face-to-face connection um, can go the extra mile. So hard to say.
0: Mm-hmm. And before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to go back to your sort of beginning, beginnings, mm-hmm. I guess, as filmmakers and writers. Uh, how many scripts had you guys written uh, before you earned your sort of first paycheck as professional writers?
1: Um, it was somewhere upwards of like 40, I want to say, like, we never put an exact number on it. We actually like we, we did a Twitter post about this recently. And it was kind of like a walk down memory road at sometimes depressing, sometimes aspirational for ourselves to see how many it was. But um, we were I mean, we we were writing since we were kids. And I think it wasn't until we were late. I don't know we were we were we were well down the road of writing a lot of bad pages well, by the time we got there, and,
2: and one of the things that I, I, I think about when I look at that list is, it's a lot. It's a, it's, a, it's a large volume of scripts. But at no point did it ever feel like we were like, wow, we're working really hard and taking this right. seriously. Yeah. You know, like we, we, <laughs> we procrastinate as much as anybody. Mm-hmm. We have other interests. We're not just sitting there writing scripts. So um, there is time to live life. And yeah. as long as you show up and, and are diligent about doing the pages, you can amass... A large amount of uh, uh, scripts as well.
1: I think the other thing too, like looking back at all the scripts, was every single one of those felt like it was going to be the one that, like, that changed things. And to a certain degree, like, it does require that belief in yourself um, and and the passion. Hopefully, like, you're writing something that hopefully, like, you you really care about, so you do want to see it um, to the, to the to the either sweet end or the bitter end of of whatever that process is. And so. That never changed. No matter if we were, you know, 18 years old to like now, we always have the hope that this is going to be the, the one that, that we absolutely love and can get made, uh, which obviously is not always the case. You, you do not usually have a good batting average in this industry.
0: So. Right. No, absolutely. Do you remember what the first script you ever wrote was? Like, either individually or together? Yeah. Um,
1: I I'm, I feel like the first one I wrote was, like, in third grade, so I don't oh, know wow. if you really count that as, like, a real script. I mean, it was, like, five pages long. Um,
2: like, one of the first features we wrote um, was a script called Visions, which was, like, this kind of... Uh, the whole movie builds up to the rug being pulled out from the audience, like this twist ending of like, it was all a dream and we were young when we wrote it. So we thought, wow, that's really clever. (laughs) Uh, And I I remember we, um, we submitted it to um, the blue cat screenplay competition when we were very young. And it was like in the early stages of that contest and Gordy Hoffman, who still runs the competition to this day, like actually called us up and and gave us feedback over the phone. And, um, and that always like getting feedback, on your work from somebody that wasn't like your parents uh was really was mm-hmm. kind of really wonderful. So that was one of the one of the early feature scripts we wrote.
0: Well, and speaking of feedback, coming from Iowa, not being in Los Angeles and starting so early especially, where did you get feedback from other than your parents and friends and family? Did you get feedback from right. other writers and filmmakers in the community, schoolmates? Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, it was a
1: little bit of everything and figuring out like what, what criticism really can be and how you how you ingest that to make it useful. Because obviously, like, especially when you're young, but I, I would say even no matter what age you are, like, there's always that reaction where you hear somebody's opinion, you're like, I don't know if that's right. And you have to kind of crack that shell and really figure out how you improve yourself. And so, for instance, there was, there was a film festival here in Iowa, the Cedar Rapids Independent Film Festival, where if you if you made a film, like you would you would get a judging panel feedback session where it basically was like these three judges that would talk to you about what worked about your film and more importantly, what wasn't working about your film. And we love that. And and also from like making films in Iowa, we developed our um, like our our peers that we always go back to, whether they're actors we've worked with or other filmmakers, or maybe they don't even work in the film industry, but they're just they're they're attuned movie watchers and they're really smart about their their story sensibilities. And we always go back to those readers first and foremost anytime we have a new project. And it's simply to say, is this entertaining? Is there places where the pacing is off? Is there, are these characters even working? And is it emotionally resonant? And those are the like main things that we really get feedback on early.
0: Mm-hmm. And how did you either sell your first spec or get your first writing assignment? What was that process like?
2: Well, it was a really long road to get to the first sale. Um, we had our first big kind of opportunity, our first professional opportunity was uh, in college, we won this uh, filmmaking competition with our work Uh, It was called MTV's Best Film on Campus. And we won a development deal with MTV Films. And we thought for five seconds, we're like, we made it, like, yay, we did it. And um, very quickly after that, we realized like we were in negotiations for a long time. And then MTV Films disbanded while we were negotiating what our prize would be And even when we got the prize, it wasn't real. They weren't treating it rightly. So they weren't treating it like a real development deal. They were treating it more like, um, you know, a couple young kids won a, a filmmaking competition. And so it wasn't real, but we used it to the best of our ability to leverage interest from agents and producers around town. And that got us a little bit of attention, but didn't really, didn't really knock any major doors down, but people started to learn who we were and, um, and I guess, I don't know, what was the- It was, um,
1: it, we, we did a short film. We got frustrated writing specs for, for a while. And we were like, let's just make a short film using all the resources we have back in Iowa, like from the relationships we forged. And we went back to Iowa and we were like, this is, we're going to treat this like it's the last film we've ever made. It was this like 10 minute short film that was about the last like 30 minutes on, on Earth and what this one, what our hero does basically in the last 30 minutes. And once we had that in hand, we were also writing a spec script, this this script called Nightlight. And we were like, ideally, we have this directing sample, and then we have this script, the feature length script that's like ready to go. And... Through that short film, we we screened that at LA Shorts Festival, and through friends of friends who were connected in the industry at like the development assistant level, it wasn't like they were they were leading agencies or anything. um, We were able to get attention of a young up and coming manager, um, Ryan Cunningham, who. 10 years on, we are still signed with to this very day. And he had the belief in, in seeing that early short film and, and the spec script that we had, that like maybe we can actually get the spec sold. And sure enough, like he was able to take it out to a handful of companies. Um, and it was, it was like a low budget horror film. It was in the found footage genre because this was, this was like the early 2010s. And it was all the usual suspects of where you think found footage films would go. And the least likely candidate on there was this production company um, headed by producer Michael London who did like Sideways and House of Sand and Fog and these incredible character dramas that we were huge fans of, but we were like, that's not the found footage genre um, producer. But we sat down with him. He, he really understood like who the characters were in the script and how this could be a character driven horror piece. And that was the first time we earned a professional paycheck and were able to get that movie up and running for you know a very, very low budget.
0: mm mm-hmm. And Brian, you'd mentioned the MTV contest you guys won. And I guess part of that is leads into my question of when did you consider your guys having made it, quote unquote, that maybe being the first time. But when did you mm-hmm. really, at, at for a, a, in a serious, meaningful way, think of yourselves as, okay, we, we've made it now. We're part of the industry.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard to say. <laughs> I don't even know if we still feel that way. Cause like you have like, so for example, we sold that script nightlight and that probably was the moment like being able to sell that script and tell mm-hmm. our parents, we're going to go make a movie. And it's, you know, it's a $2 million budget and it's a real film that felt real, but you know, on the flip side of the coin, that movie took several years to complete. It came out, it got like a 12% on Rotten Tomatoes. It did nothing to further our directing mm-hmm. career. We went right back into like we went into director jail um, for the first time and had to kind of build ourselves back up. And so
1: I don't know, like, um, I mean to a certain degree, like, because um, you know, there, there's been benchmarks in our career where we kind of pontificate on on that question. And what I've come to realize is when you feel you've made it, it's actually when you're just doing the work or like you're showing up at your laptop and you're typing in words because to, to a certain degree, how I feel today, anytime I'm doing that is no different than when I was 16 years old, or when I was in third grade, and I'm writing, it's like the, the ideation and the sense of creation is what makes you, you know, a writer. And of course, like, there's, there's the idea of like, you know, occupational success. But what's interesting is it doesn't always feel like that's the end goal once you arrive there. And, and so I think it really comes back to doing the work that, um, that, you know, that- feels like you're making it. So
2: That was definitely the most gratifying in a weird way or like kind of philosophically enlightening moment of the A Quiet Place journey because having worked on a movie that was successful and then certainly having worked on movies that weren't successful, it's exactly what Scott's saying. We're like, oh, okay, like the fun, po- the fun part of the process is actually not the destination and never is. It's actually just doing the work. The most mm. fun we had with A Quiet Place wasn't uh, opening weekend, although that was fun, um, it was writing the movie and and coming up with the ideas and 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 doing the scripts and it and it made us look back on those thirty, forty plus spec scripts that we had written um, as up and comers that never got made into movies with a, a new light. We were looking at those as, oh, those aren't those weren't wasted opportunities. Like it was so fun to write those projects. Mm-hmm. We had so much fun being creative. Um, and that's what we come back to now.
0: Mm-hmm. oftentimes, Writer or managers and agents and executives, they're always looking for writers that have a voice. They're looking for the writer's voice, mm-hmm. their unique perspective they bring to it. Just from my perspective, it seems like you guys have a really cool sensibility in terms of looking at things from a different perspective, whether it's uh, a quiet place where you don't have dialogue really <laughs> to yeah. uh, things like uh, you would mention this the one of the early things you wrote where it was the last 30 minutes of this your heroes your protagonists life on earth kind of thing yeah uh, because the world is ending or something like that so it's it's instead of a beginning middle and end you start off at the end and that's your beginning so it's kind of interesting in that Mm -hmm. sense what do you consider your guys's sort of voice what what makes you guys unique I think, like, for us, like, have
1: to answer that with, like, what we're fans of. And I think, you know, first and foremost, we're we're fans of cinema all across the spectrum. But character-driven stuff, first and foremost, but, like, popcorn concepts. Like, I remember the summer of 1998 being incredible because Deep Impact and Armageddon came out. And (laughs) and obviously, that has a kinship to to A Quiet Place and, and the short film we're talking about because it's End of the World. But we love that spectacle. But at the same time, like, you know, you look at our DVD shelves and they're filled with Gus Van Sant films and Francois Truffaut. Mm-hmm. And and we love like the ability to go deep into character. And I, I think for us, what clicks it together to use a filmmaker as emblematic of maybe where our voices stray towards is like M. Night Shyamalan, where you have these concepts that demand this film to be cinematic and you want to see the camera move in really interesting ways. But the storytelling itself is very, very layered. Like it's, it's not just a story about a ghost. It's a story about this broken psychologist and this broken young boy that really need each other in order to find, you know, themselves at, at the end of the story. And that you can peel back these the the layers and the veneers and find these incredible thematic resonance um, behind it. And so, I think for us, that's kind of. How we approach um, how we approach writing a script. We try to figure out what's the idea that makes us excited to go to the theater and see this as audience members. But then, how do you give the the story you know substance and sustenance in order to to let the audience see it to the final final moment.
2: And also, what makes the story a movie? Like that's another mm-hmm. thing we we've, we've been asking ourselves for years and years, which is like, why is this a movie and not a novel? Why is this a movie right. and um, not a video game? And And it's, and it started to filter into, I guess, our voice as writers on the page where we've gotten more and more visual with the text and more and more precious with um, formatting and how we're using words on the page in order to communicate what we see as a immensely visual story. So we're always like mining, what is the visual elements of the story? Why is it a movie? And then how do we express that on the page?
0: Mm, Right. And I want to talk a little bit about career timeline because a lot of newer writers, they sort of compress the timeline. And I know you did as well as, as well as I did, as well as probably most uh, writers, filmmakers listening. Uh, And that was one of your latest posts on Twitter, which I found fascinating, which -hmm. if you haven't followed, uh, Scott and Brian on Twitter, it's at Beck and woods. You definitely should. There's a lot of great stuff on there in terms of inspirational stuff, uh, educational stuff a lot of stuff about their writing journey both past and present which is incredibly valuable which I'm, I definitely want to get into more but one of them was uh, talking about a career timeline and it said in 2010 you signed with your manager Ryan cunningham and in mm-hmm. 2012 you sold your first spec uh, spec excuse me and signed with an agent and then various projects in various stages happened between then but you're what you're sort of known for now uh you sold a quiet place in 2016 and then mm-hmm. in 2018 a quiet place was released so your first big studio major feature film between signing with an agent in 2010 and it hitting the theaters in 2018 was eight years can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that because it was told to me early on in my career and, and it's something that i've read on your twitter as well is it's not a, a sprint it's a marathon yeah. Right. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your career timeline and, and how it's been? Because also on your Twitter, you had mentioned that, you know, you have goals. Oh, it, it we'll be there for two years and then we'll start a production company yeah. for, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. And we never meet yeah. those timelines. It's good to have yeah. goals, but we never, ever meet those timelines. Uh, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: yeah exactly. I mean, so you know the the timeline of of things um you know goes back to like graduating college around two thousand and seven and and that was honestly like with the, with the journey with the quiet place like we we were just stating ideas for what a quiet place was back then in two thousand and six two thousand and seven and collected them for the next decade until we we you know finished that spec script but it was working a lot of odds and ends, you know, with, with jobs. Like I was working in uh, part-time as a graphic designer at a low budget DVD company. Brian was doing industrial videos for John Deere here in Iowa. Um, working at AMC movie theaters while we were, you know, writing, writing these scripts and 2010, we signed with a manager through 2010, 2011. It was writing that next um, spec script, the, the nightlight script sold that early 2012. And I think like 2012 to 20, through the end of 2013, we were just working solely on on that movie and then trying to attach ourselves as like directors to other movies, which is really, really difficult when you don't really have a feature length film to show. And toiling around trying to chase open writing assignments too, which which um, we were learning all that time, like what that game really is. And it's, it's a tricky game because it's, you're usually up against, you know, Five to twenty different candidates at at minimum, and the at the end of the day, the studio may pillage ideas from each of these writers and pick their favorite writer that did, wasn't even up for the interview to begin with. Um, and I think Brian and I grew frustrated by that process around like 2014, and we were working on another spec that did didn't sell at the time. And 2015 was where we were like, we're just hitting our heads against the wall. Like we're barely making ends meet, maxing out credit cards. We and would attach ourselves to, as an example, we'd attach
2: ourselves to direct um, a studio film, which took months of us fighting for that job and putting together presentations. And then they finally give you the job and then you spend a year developing the script with the writer and getting it to a place where everybody's happy. And then the studio's like, all right, let's try to cast it. And then you go to Chris Pratt and Chris Pratt doesn't want to do it. And then the studio's like, that's it. We tried, Mm -hmm. sorry. And we're just, you know, and you, you find yourself um, with this collection of, of stuff that weren't even at sometimes not even scripts, just Mm -hmm. ideas or thoughts or a vision in your head of something you wanted to do. And and it was frustrating. So, and then that's when that was at that moment that we were, we sat down and we, and we went, all right, we're writing a quiet place. And uh, we're going to make the movie. And if the studios want to make this with us, wonderful, but uh, nobody's going to stop us from making it. We just had to take our careers into our own hands because we had been stalled
1: out for so long, even though we were working really hard. And, and again, like Quiet Place was, a, was an idea that we had been gestating for like 10 years. And so we had like certain pages written, but we, we always felt like, oh, maybe it's too weird of an idea. And so we just like shoved those pages into into the metaphorical drawer. And around this time, like we, we shared a few of those pages with our, with our significant others. Uh, Um, both of our our wives and they were like drop everything that you're doing like you're chasing writing assignments that you're not even like completely passionate about just to like make ends meet like just drop everything you're doing like finish this script and so it was at that point around like um, 20 I guess it was like late 2014 and all throughout 2015 that we really like put pedal to the metal and and finished what that spec script was and um, we took it out to a, a production company, um, Platinum Dunes, Michael Bay's company. And immediate, immediately from there, they they came on board. And then that went into Paramount Pictures and everything <laughs> kind of, you know, went zero to 60 at that point. But again, it was like built on these years and years in advance of trying to like fit the, all the puzzle pieces together, but not not really knowing where, what the final picture was going to be.
0: Well, and I wanted to get a, into a little bit about the difference between specs and writing assignments. And uh, I've faced a lot of the same issues. And I think a lot of writers have that writing assignments, even going off for things you're not necessarily passionate about, but you're sent out on mm-hmm. and you've got to give it your best, you know, efforts, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But for a lot of newer writers, you think, Oh, well, the way the game works is I write a script, someone buys it, they make it and I get paid. That's the way it works. Mm-hmm. And it can work that way, but oftentimes you're just as likely to get, a writing assignment where they have an idea or something like that. And you have, they meet with a bunch of writers and then they hire a pair of writers Mm -hmm. or a writer. uh, If it's not you guys uh, to write it Uh, or specs can be also developed with other people instead of just you going off on your own and writing something. Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about your experience in terms of specs versus writing assignments? And obviously you've done well, um, in, in you know, selling uh, a quiet place and things like that. But can you talk a little bit about your experience with both and what you liked and disliked about those those experiences?
2: Well, everyone's everyone's job in the film business. I guess like an important kind of structural rule to understand is that everybody's job, whether you're a studio executive or a producer, like everybody's job is basically or a financier. Your job is to say no and to not make movies. Um, and every, um, buyer has a wall of defenses of people who, um, are trying to figure out why this is not a good idea to make or why, why this is too expensive. It's just hard to get a movie made. So we found that if you're talking about getting a movie made, and if you're an idea generator and you love to come up with, with, um, you know, creative ideas, then the spec, uh, the spec, game is the best place in town because you can control your own destiny and you can let your imagination run wild. And it's yours. You, it's a thing you own and, and you have to sell it. Um, but you know, a lot of people love, you know, working on other things, adaptations or, um, or franchises. And, and, and that's, that's a world all unto itself. It's very competitive. You're up against a lot of people. Oftentimes you're up against people who are much further along in their careers than you are. Mm-hmm. And that can be really frustrating, you know, spending a lot of time working on something. And the, the, the problem too, with assignments or or um, projects like that, or even pitching to a certain extent is <clears throat> those require a lot of work to get the job. And that work does not involve writing. And for Scott and I, we love writing. That's That's our native language. It's hard for us to speak in pitch form it's not native to who we are we speak in script language that's we like writing scripts so so for us um it, it's always been about the spec. yeah and i think
1: like part of our frustrations there was like an experience where there was an idea we were pitched by a producer that was like this is a guaranteed like sale all you have to do is like write the treatment and this was before we were in in the guild and necessarily knew better and we worked on this treatment for literally a year and a half. It wasn't the only thing we were working on during that time, but it was like one of like three or four major things that, that we cleared our plate for. And it just kept developing and developing and going down these, these blind alleys that felt like they, they weren't making the project better. And we were getting further and further away from that quote unquote, like guaranteed sale. And by the end of that, like year and a half process, like Brian and I had to just say like, we've given this our, our all but we just, we don't feel that passion anymore. We feel like it's kind of been burned out of us and we have to move on from this. And again, I think that was about the time where we're like, let's just go back to the spec game because what, what you can do in the spec game is as is kind of touching upon is you're protecting all the ideas until the time is right that they coalesce. And I feel like sometimes in the open writing assignment game, whether you're doing an adaptation or treatment, there's so many opinions that can dilute the, the material too early before it really the material has a time to really say what it needs to be or what, what it is. Um, so that's, that's partly where our frustrations have grown out of the writing assignment, but at the same time, like we, we have been hired to do adaptations before for like TV pilots, which is, which is kind of fun to a certain degree because you're, you're already given certain material that, that you can, you know, look at and figure out how do you weave this into a cinematic story? Um, but, but again, like it's, it's, it's kind of a numbers game. Like you can you can, do these assignments all you want, but only, you know, a small percentage ever get, get made.
0: Right. And as a writing and directing partnership, we hear all the time that, that writing partnerships can be challenging. Um, how do you guys do it? Both, I guess, as writers and directors, whether it's, division of labor like does one of you write one scene and the other write the next or do you collaborate on everything and directing i've heard like the hughes brothers one is behind the camera and one works with actors how do you guys handle the division of labor on both writing and directing
2: well we do we do everything together so there's not really a stark division of labor so we just get paid half as much as most people (laughs) but so we do everything from beginning to end but it's a really fun process so like writing as an example walk you through a writing process with the script um we'll sit in a room together and we'll toss ideas around or we'll have an idea from four years ago that keeps coming back up into conversation and we keep noodling on and we kind of do a lot of um idea ideation in the same room throwing up ideas on a marker board oh what about this and then we have, we'll have like a google document for each project we have and we'll just throw up ideas onto the workspace um collect ideas and then when it comes time to script writing One of us, it's a different person every time, but one of us will take 10 pages and start. So let's say Scott takes the first 10 pages of the new project and he writes them and then he'll send those to me and I'll read them, react to them. We'll have a conversation and then I'll rewrite those 10 pages and add another 10 pages. And then he'll rewrite my 10 pages and add another 10. We just kind of go like that. So by the time we finish a draft, it really feels polished. It feels like um, like, like our manager's always joking that like, our first drafts always feel like draft number 15 because we've just ironed over it so many different times. And Directing is oddly similar, which is Scott and I storyboard every single shot together and, um, and, and same kind of thing, like somebody will take two pages over here, somebody will take two pages over there, lots of drawing, lots of conversations, lots of challenging each other to do it better or different or what about this, what about that. Lots of perspective, um, no preciousness because it never feels like um, your work when somebody else is collaborating with you it feels like their work so you can be honest with each other and it's really wonderful and then on set we we actually we have an umbilical cord between the two of us we talk to the actors together we talk to the crew together um, it's fun it's a fun process I, I, I would uh, urge everybody to find a, a writing directing partner it makes it so much better mm-hmm. if you can find somebody that you trust.
0: And writing and directing are different sort of skill sets. One being very sort of isolated, although in a partnership, I guess it's a little bit Mm -hmm. different, and the other being incredibly social and necessary, where everyone comes to you for answers and questions, and and it's very collaborative. What sort of skill sets do you think that you have apply to each that sort of... Mm -hmm. Do you have different, in other words, do you have different strengths as, you know, Scott versus Brian or Ryan versus Scott on right. different things that sort of elevate the other?
1: Right. I, I don't know necessarily that we do, although I would say if like one of us died tomorrow, we'd probably be lost without the other. So it's it's a weird mix because I feel like we've we've grown up with the same sensibilities, like we've grown up with the same things that that we love or the same instincts. And so to a certain degree, I think we, we try to bring together, there's certainly an overlap of our, of our own ideas, but always like Brian might pick, you know, something to add, you know, in a scene, just a visual flourish that I'm not thinking about and vice versa. And it just like, it adds layers upon it. But I feel like there's there's a strong kinship which helps us have this unified voice. And again, I think that's maybe just because we've we've known each other for over 20 years at this point, and, and kind of have gone through the same life experiences and and bring that to the to the table together.
2: Well, one of the interesting things that your question made me think of is is how working towards having a career in this business teaches gives you the tools to do the job in mm-hmm. a way. So like what, I started thinking about like is one of you asked if one of us was more social and, and and better to do the directing job. And it's like, no, neither of us are. We're both kind of introverted, shy kids. Like the thought like 20 years ago, the thought of, um, you know, having to direct a crew or actors would have given me, uh, you know, anxiety Mm -hmm. disorder. It's just like, that sounds horrible. Um, But like little by little, the more you do this job, just like pitching, pitching is a nightmare. Like nobody, I don't think anybody likes pitching. We certainly don't.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but you just kind of develop the skills over. That's time. true because I think like for us, we we learned again by by what Brian's saying by doing. Where in the writing phase, like you can put your on, on your ideation hat, and like the the world is literally open to you in terms of what you put on the page. But when you're directing, it's you have to put on your pragmatic hats, and you have to figure out like how do I actually do this, and how do I do this if I only have like eight hours uh, of a day to basically knock out what should be 12 hours of a film shoot. And all of a sudden you have to completely, you know, change your, your approach. And so I think for us, it's been healthy to just try and do the work, even if it's on a no budget film with, with a script, that's only 10 pages long. And the more that you exercise those muscles, the more that you, you get used to it, or you can at least fake it until you make it.
0: And you had mentioned you were doing little short films since you were kids, mm-hmm. since you were 11, 12, 13, something like that. Um. do you find that your writing came from your wanting to make films or do you find that you were really writers and wanting to control that vision led to directing
2: mm-hmm. i mean to me it's i think I, it's yeah. both because like we were writing short stories and plays before we were making films but we we're also kind of making films at the same time i think we just love storytelling and i think we just realized we had a knack for visual
1: storytelling yeah and i think the discovery was that you know you write something on the page what if it's just for a novel like that will strike somebody a certain way but with cinema you can involve you know whether it's music or an acting performance or just the atmosphere and the tone that you create and that can be incredibly special and moving in a certain way and so for us i think during the high school years we started figuring out like how do you actually activate that so you write on page like that 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 somebody is struck by an emotion in this, in the scene. But then all of a sudden we, we make like a makeshift, uh, camera dolly with PVC pipe and we push that camera in slowly to a face. And we're like, Oh, that's how we can communicate that visually. And that's what it means when you write it on the page. And so I think it, the process of writing and the process of directing actually started informing each other in a way that still to this very day where we're still learning it very much. So.
0: Well, as both students of, the craft in terms of screenwriting and filmmaking, but also as veteran screenwriters and filmmakers having done both on a professional level, what are some of the things that screenwriters out there who may want to direct in the future, what are some of the things that they should know and mm-hmm. vice versa? What are some of the things that maybe young filmmakers out there who want to take a stab at screenwriting should know? Right.
1: Well, I think on a very basic level, like if, if you're a writer and you have aspirations to to be a filmmaker or just bring it to life in some way, it's um, the best way that, that at least our experience has taught us is write for your own backyard, meaning like, you know, use Quiet Place for an example. We knew we had a friend's farm like nearby in Iowa that we'd have full access to It'd have a corn silo for like the scary set piece. It would have the farmhouse, it'd have the shed for, for, um, where they, where they hide out. And it had all those, those beats that we would need to fulfill the story from an exciting place, but also an emotional place. And we knew, you know, if we produce this for a little amount of money, we didn't necessarily need to see the monster the whole time. So it'd be more about the sound design and hide the monster in the, in the shadows. And so for us, we're like, we can hopefully make a very exciting film, but make it for, you know, all these resources that we have are at our disposal. So I think the key is like, figure out like what Brian was saying, like, what makes a story cinematic, because I think that inherently will draw people in to see what what you're writing, but also figure out, how do you do that with the resources that you have at your disposal? Because obviously there's, you know, the history of this. Like um Paranormal Activity was not, you know, multi million dollar film and that found an audience um and, and safety not guaranteed like Colin Travaro. Like that was just a clever idea done with a very specific tone and incredible actors. And there's there's many examples of how you can kind of break in by just doing something that's at your fingertips.
2: Yeah. And I think to supplement that and this is pretty obvious probably goes without saying but um being able to study the work that you admire Mm -hmm. whether that's reading screenplays of your favorite movies reading and reading them and trying to understand how they achieved the tone or the goal or the emotion that they made you feel when you watch the movie and then watching the movies and studying the movies shot by shot and it's great because if you love film um or television like we do uh, studying is simply just watching your favorite movies over mm-hmm. and over again and discovering new work and, and thinking about it. So so really studying for us is just a fun day at the movies.
0: Right, literally. Literally. Um, uh, we have a couple of listener questions I wanted to run by you. Uh, no. The first is from P. Buthorn, and he asked, I'm interested in knowing their involvement in the sequel to A Quiet Place. Uh, if they weren't involved, how did they handle it?
1: Yeah, yeah. so the sequel um, was an interesting story and, and the inception of that was um, going back to like opening weekend for, for a quiet place, like back to two years ago now and the studio announced the sequel, I think before John or ourselves really <laughs> had a moment to process what was going on with the first one. They're like, Oh, that's crazy. Like there's going to be a sequel. Um, and one of the things like that Brian and I did in the inception of writing A Quiet Place was it was kind of a reaction to just wanting to put something out there in the universe that wasn't necessarily a franchise. It wasn't, you know, a superhero movie and it was just hopefully something slightly different um, for audiences. And so as soon as the sequel is announced, we're like, we're incredibly excited. People are receiving the film that way, but that's kind of antithetical to what our goal was. And, and I think like at first, like John was like, I'm, I'm not going to come back unless there's an idea for, for the story as well. And after like a couple months of the studio looking at other writers and other directors, John came up with an idea that he was really excited about. And we were like, go off and 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 do that if you feel passionate about it. For us, it was like returning to the well though of original ideas. And so for instance, we went off, we were working on a few different things. Um, the, the thing we were like most excited about and most passionate about is something we can't really talk that much about, but we literally, Found a pocket to write it in in the last like nine months and set it up to write and direct and produce at Sony with uh, one of our heroes Sam Raimi producing. Um, so that'll be the next project, and we feel like that's the 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 next in line in terms of like the passion that we had for a quiet place. So the sequel, we're we're incredibly excited again that there's um, you know an appetite in audiences for that. And excited for the world to see it, but but for us, we we just wanted to kind of follow this this different pursuit.
0: Mm-hmm. So your, your goal of making, not making a franchise turned out to sort of fail through no fault of your own, <laughs> yeah, yeah. although through partial yeah, fault of right. your own, you know, as being successful yeah. as it was, yeah. Yeah, um, happy
1: accident, I suppose. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, okay, Paul C. asked, for their spec work, I'm curious about how they choose which ideas to work on and invest in. Uh, I would also love to hear if they have any advice on pitching IP not owned by the writer. How do they approach crafting a uh, quote unquote take on pre existing IP?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, so that's a great question. So, the first question um, how do we pick an idea? So, the ideas, we're constantly writing ideas down. We both have um, physical journals, we have our digital phone note things on our Apple phones, and we have uh, Google workspaces on our uh, computers. And we're always writing down ideas, 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 ideas. And over time, the good ideas announce themselves over time most of those ideas fall away and you realize oh that was fun in the moment but it actually doesn't have legs or it doesn't have a thematic undercurrent that we're interested in or it doesn't have a compelling character at the center of it so we decide what we're basing our next spec on every time we go to write a next spec is it's always that idea that's stuck around that we're just so excited about we keep talking about. We keep telling each other. We encourage each other. We come up with new scenes. That's always the idea that mm-hmm. makes it.
1: And then the the question about IP, I guess, like there's there's a couple of things just just to address. It's like there's obviously, and we've been in this boat too, like earlier in our career, where you want to write like a sequel or like a, a ancillary like spinoff to your favorite thing without having the rights. Which, which on one hand, like that can be fun and that can be exciting. But if you don't have the rights secured, that could also be a year of your life that's flushed down the tubes when all of a sudden they've they've hired Aaron Sorkin to write, you know, the the next, you know, the thing movie or something. And um, what we've done in those situations usually is like, we think about what's the exciting kernel of that idea that could be the next in the franchise. And how do we make that our own? How do we make that original? So like a perfect example in cinema history would be like, George Lucas wanting to do Flash Gordon, but not getting the rights. So we had to write Star Wars. And then there's uh, Steven Spielberg who wanted to do James Bond, but he went off and, and did Indiana Jones and like created these incredible films that wouldn't otherwise exist um, if, if they were looking at IP. But I think like, if you do end up getting the rights or get the okay for it, like what we personally think about if the few times that we've thought about IP is like, how do you make this, you know, somewhat of the same, but incredibly different, meaning the same where it's an entry point for the fans of what that is, that they're satiated by that. But you give them something unexpected, because I think that's what the what our favorite movies are is where you go into a movie and what you get out of that is totally out of left field. And it takes you to new exciting places so that it doesn't just feel like it's retreading, you know, the, the same same footing that the the prior incarnations, whether it's a remake or a sequel, would would have
0: done. Right, and lastly, if you could tell young writers out there, newer writers out there, uh, I guess emerging writers out there is what the term is nowadays, um, one thing to make their journey as a writer easier, what would it be?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing that comes to my my mind is don't be too hard on yourself because it's a very challenging mm-hmm. business. Being a writer is challenging. You, you you kind of by nature of creating something out of thin air, you have to be a little hard on yourself and it it can be taxing. Um, But uh, I think it's important to remember to have fun Mm -hmm. and not uh, compare yourself to your heroes who might've broken in or, or done something amazing earlier in their careers. Yeah.
1: And I think the other thing that, that we try to remind ourselves of and I think would be important early is like, just be be personal on the page and that doesn't mean you need to write your own autobiography or make it apparent that all of you know the, the issues of like the characters or the themes are, are something that are obviously tied to your life. but I think the more that you ingest your own um, you know, psychoses into the, into the characters, the more that that the readers or executives or the end goal the audience, is going to relate to it in a very meaningful and personal way. And I think that's, what's unique about film in general is that when you see movies that are incredibly moving, it's because they're actually speaking to uh, what, what, you know, you might be going through in a, in a very personal way versus it just feeling like going through the motions of what, a movie should be. The
2: audience always knows the truth when they mm-hmm. hear it. And they always know when something's just a copy of a copy of a copy mm-hmm. that they've seen before. So I think Scott's right on find the truth and find what's personal.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys can stick around for a few minutes to chat on the unscripted yeah. after show on Patreon. Great. Um, yeah. So be sure to follow Scott and Brian on Twitter, their joint account. So you guys are true partners in every sense of the word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. It's at Beck woods. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast on a streaming service, please give us some stars or a nice review. And if you're watching on YouTube, please hit that like button. We do, really do appreciate it. So thank you guys for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you pleasure so much. Kevin. Thank you. And uh, thank you guys all for watching and listening and or listening, I suppose. Uh, and we'll catch you next time.